This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I have a couple of quick announcements as we kick off the new year here. I hope you'll help us fund our production costs for 2017 so I can keep providing you brand new podcasts twice a week. Show your support for the show by giving to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. Whatever you can give is always appreciated and will help us keep going over here in 2017. I also want to ask you to take a brief listener survey so we can better understand you, our audience, and find advertisers who are best matched to your interests. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the podcast. The peaceful nation of Switzerland is known for many things. The Matterhorn, chocolates, its crystal blue lakes, fondue, watches, Swiss army knives. But perhaps nothing is more distinctly Swiss or more intriguing as the Swiss-numbered bank account. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. The Swiss bank policy of secret accounts was codified into law in 1934, coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, just three months after Adolf Hitler seized power and declared himself Reichsfuhrer right next door in Germany. Under that law, it became a criminal offense for any Swiss bank to reveal the name of an account holder to any third party, including tax authorities, foreign governments, and even Swiss authorities, establishing Switzerland as the premier tax haven for foreigners, with Swiss banks accounting for approximately $2.1 trillion, or 27% of the world's total offshore assets, ranging from stolen Nazi gold to priceless works of art. For decades, organized crime figures, corrupt dictators, money launderers, drug kingpins, illegal arms dealers, terrorists, and spies have mixed among the tens of thousands of wealthy Americans trying to avoid Uncle Sam, happily making the trip to Geneva and paying hefty premiums to store their loot in numbered Swiss deposit boxes, creating an almost adventurous James Bond-like intrigue around Swiss bank accounts. That is, until 2007, when Bradley C. Birkenfeld, an American working as an international private banker in Switzerland, became the most significant financial whistleblower in history when he blew the lid off Swiss bank secrecy by exposing how UBS, the world's largest bank, helped ultra-wealthy Americans commit billions in tax fraud. In 2005, despite a thriving career spanning Credit Suisse, Barclays Bank, and UBS, Bradley Birkenfeld felt that he could no longer keep silent about bank-enabled tax fraud. When UBS rejected his concerns, he turned to the U.S. authorities. His bombshell revelations cracked the impenetrable fortress of Swiss banks, proving that offshore financial institutions systematically aided clients' tax evasion, corruption, and terrorist activities. Then, in a stunning twist, the U.S. Justice Department turned on its own informant, sending Birkenfeld to prison for 30 months 
while his bosses at UBS and American tax evaders got off scot-free. He was soon vindicated when his work enabled the U.S. Treasury to recover $15 billion in back taxes, fines, and penalties. The case set off a domino effect of international investigations into offshore banking secret crimes, including the Panama Papers and more, and it triggered monumental changes in banking laws, the federal tax code, and international tax treaties. Now retired, Birkenfeld is a philanthropist and supports whistleblowing efforts worldwide. He's the author of a compelling new book called Lucifer's Banker, the untold story of how I destroyed Swiss bank secrecy. On today's podcast, he'll reveal the ins and outs and dirty little secrets of Swiss banking. He'll disclose what types of people have Swiss bank accounts and why. And he'll walk me through how one would go about opening a Swiss bank account. He'll discuss how UBS courted wealthy Americans who wanted to hide their money and then made it as hard as possible for their clients to withdraw from their own accounts unless UBS profited heavily. He'll talk about UBS's dealings with the brother of the world's most notorious terrorist and another very wealthy client with close ties to both Saddam Hussein and a U.S. presidential candidate known for fighting terrorists. He'll also reveal how those relationships and surprisingly cozy ties between UBS and Washington politicians may have led the Justice Department officials to throw Birkenfeld, the whistleblower, under the bus in order to protect some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in America. Coming up with Swiss banker-turned-whistleblower Bradley Birkenfeld in just a moment. For over a decade, Bradley Birkenfeld worked in private wealth management in Switzerland for Credit Suisse, Barclays Switzerland, and finally UBS, where he was the head of their North American desk, helping wealthy Americans hide their money from Uncle Sam. He then became the most significant financial whistleblower in history, and he writes about it in a new book called Lucifer's Banker, The Untold Story of How I Destroyed Swiss Bank Secrecy. Mr. Birkenfeld, thanks for joining me over the phone. Well, thank you for having me. First off, given the secrecy of Swiss banking, my impression would be that it's not easy for an outsider to break into that world. So tell me, what was that experience first like for you? I didn't have a client base, if you will. So I was really going through their training program, and I saw a lot of things on different desks between the Middle East desk and certainly some of the European desks. And I learned a lot about what was going on, the products they offered, the fees they charged, the uh, the tactics that people used. And certainly, uh, Credit Suisse was a very large bank at the time, uh, as opposed to UBS when I finished my career. And uh, these were some of the biggest banks in Switzerland and in the world, for that matter. You said when you first arrived at UBS, you had to sit in on some orientation meetings, including security and compliance, which you said should have been called non-compliance and ass-covering. What kind of things did they instruct you to do in those classes? Well, there's a a document that's uh, on my website that you'll see that really uh, details some of the things that they were telling us to do. They had case studies where they uh, told us how to avoid detection at customs. 
how to change hotels, how to delete contacts in your um, your phone or your computer if you were ever questioned at customs. So this was something that was very nefarious. And the other problem was was that they gave us encrypted laptops, which I refused to bring to the United States. So you can see it was a concerted effort on the on behalf of the bank to keep clients secret, but also at the same time they knew they were breaking the law. So this was quite uh, quite a dangerous uh, formula. Well, I'd love to hear about how all of this works. So let's say if I wanted to open a secret Swiss bank account with your office, what would that experience be like? Uh, do I just walk in with a briefcase full of money? Uh, is there a lot of security? Well, Switzerland in general is quite a safe place, not only um, economically and politically stable, but safe from a standpoint that there's really no crime there. So when you came into, say, UBS, where I work, you would come in a, um, a nondescript elevator and go up to a particular floor where you would be greeted by a concierge person who would bring you into a private room, as they called it, a salon. And these rooms, there was probably two or three floors full of these rooms. I would say about 30 of these private rooms that had a desk and chairs and a computer so that a private banker like myself could come down from another floor to greet the client or potential client for that matter. And uh, you would start to ask them questions about why they wanted to open an account, what they were thinking of doing and some of their background. So you would do a little bit of due diligence just to understand what the client's needs were. But at the same time, you were there to give them uh, total discretion, whether it was from a spouse or from a business partner or even from uh, their own government for tax purposes. Aside from cash, what kind of assets were clients depositing? We saw people come in with uh, a variety of things, uh, large stacks of cash. The largest amount I think I saw was uh, several million dollars um, when people came in with cash. Um, certainly, we had people come in with all kinds of transactions that were quite unique, uh, from um, metals, meaning uh, platinum and gold, to uh, all types of uh, famous artwork that was stored in uh, in large safe deposit boxes, meaning large, like you could put a painting in or something of that nature. So there was a lot of that that went on. So to the normal person, that would certainly be absolutely strange. To us, it was almost like, uh, I don't want to say an everyday occurrence, but it certainly was something that was something that happened frequently, uh, whether they brought money in or um, gold and uh, bullion or paintings of that nature. Yeah, I think you said that it wasn't uncommon for someone to bring in a very, very valuable painting. And I guess you had a special procedure where they would go through an underground garage that took them up to the bank? Well, that's it. A lot of people wanted to be quite discreet. They didn't want people knowing their business. As well as when you bring in something so valuable that's maybe $5, 10 $20 million, uh, they want to come in through um, the underground parking, and then it, it carefully gets uh, taken out and stored properly and insured and, and properly uh, put uh, in the client's account or into their safe deposit box. How big was your largest account? My biggest account was about $200 million. Whoa. Um, and he's quite well known. He's in the book. Um, he was actually um, evading taxes uh, a decade before I even knew him, uh, Igor Lenikoff, uh, a real estate developer out in California. And uh, he and his son had opened accounts in Barclays, Bahamas, before I even knew him. And they had opened the accounts with Yugoslavian passports. So you can see that this, this gentleman was uh, breaking the law long before I even knew him. 
And quite frankly, when he was being charged, he hired an attorney from the same office that was charging him to represent him. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see how corrupt the U.S. federal system is, is that you can just uh, write a check and, and get yourself off. So a billionaire writes a check and hires an attorney from the office that was already indicting him. And the president could take millions from the bank that was breaking the law, and uh, he can hang out with the chairman of UBS Americas, and there's no problem there. So you can see that this is all across the board quite a frustrating thing for the American people, and that's why um, it was good to expose this and, and bring it to light. Yeah. Now, UBS was not a passive actor in this. They would send you out to recruit U.S. clients for Swiss bank accounts. How would you go about finding U.S. clients, and how would you broach the subject of opening a Swiss account with them? Well, again, if you if you and your audience go onto my website, lucifersbanker.com, you'll see some documents under the case and the UBS scandal. There's documents there where we had a referral program. And what this was was people in the United States, the UBS onshore offices across the country um, would refer business to us overseas. So that was one way we did it, or they would actually hold um, VIP events, whether it was um, an art show or a concert or a classic car show or a tennis match. We then come in from Switzerland under the guise of the U.S. offices and attend these events with rich Americans. That's how we would get some of the clients or existing clients would refer some people, or existing clients would bring more money. So you can see there was a whole variety of ways in which people would bring money to Switzerland and open bank accounts. And it was pretty well known that you wouldn't have to talk about you know, evading tax because people who had money knew what Switzerland was about. You didn't, you didn't have income tax. You didn't have capital gains tax. You didn't have an inheritance tax. So you pretty much paid zero tax if you had a Swiss bank account, but you were charged a few percentage points on fees. So if you're in a 50% tax bracket, you're paying 3 4% fees. Do you really care? Yeah. You're saving 47%. Yeah, yeah. And that was an interesting aspect of this is you said that you were told that your first job was to get the money and secure it in a numbered account. And your second job was, quoting the book, to make that money unavailable to the client unless UBS benefits in multiple ways. How did they want you to go about doing that? What they would do is they would put them into portfolio management mandates, meaning um, a portfolio manager would manage their account. But when I looked at it, all of a sudden I saw that there were UBS funds in the UBS portfolio management. So that means people get a custody fee, a management fee, and then further fees for the funds. So anybody who had an account at UBS uh, would have to think twice and say, hey, wait a minute, why am I being triple charged here? And the bank was taking advantage of the client because they knew that they wanted to hide their money so that they could take advantage of them. So this was really quite uh, quite dubious. Yeah, and I think you said that if people wanted to actually make a withdrawal or use their own money, basically the bank would arrange to loan them their own money. Is that right? Well, that's it. And even if you took cash out of the bank, they charged you a fee. So, I mean, there were various ways that, you know, people would uh, want to make an investment somewhere else. And if it was a withdrawal, they charged them. And if they wanted to draw down off of an existing investment, well, they would charge them a fee to do that as well. So the Swiss banks never lost. They always Mm -hmm. took advantage and they knew that the client was willing to do that. So 
uh, it was a growing business for them, and they, it was very, very lucrative. Yeah, so no matter how much they were getting fleeced, it was still a better deal than getting taxed, huh? Well, that's it. Would you rather pay 50% or pay us <laughs> 3 or 4 or 5%? Yeah, yeah. Now, um, how many U.S. clients had numbered Swiss accounts with UBS? There was about 19,000 accounts wow. with $20 billion in aggregate assets. Describe your clients to me. What kind of people had numbered Swiss accounts at UBS? Well, it, it varied. It, it really covered the whole spectrum. You had it uh, from politicians to billionaires and millionaires, uh, people that owned businesses, people who inherited money, people who owned real estate, people that did import-export, people who did business overseas. It, it just varied on the, the individual client because there were so many of them um, and all walks of life. Um, different age groups, um, different ethnicities, people who maybe migrated to the U.S. from different countries. So you really had a whole plethora of people that were looking to uh, either just shield their money or to uh, hide it from paying taxes or from a spouse, as I said. Among these clients, are they names that I might recognize? Sure. Um, one, one gentleman in the book is um, the biological brother of Osama bin Laden. Wow. Yeah, and he lived in Boston, so the same town in which the planes took off from. Now, I didn't say he was involved in that terrorist attack, but clearly anyone with a third-grade education would start with a family member of the most notorious terrorist in U.S. history who had an offshore account of $14 million in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, how about the U.S. accounts? Were there any names there that I might recognize, either in business or well-known people? Oh yeah, well there's 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 certainly names there, and they will be coming out soon. Uh, oh really? They're, yeah, they're not in the book yet, and uh, some people have uh, tried to uh, intimidate me to say not to expose these people. But uh, clearly, these people were breaking the law, and they think that uh, they're going to try and intimidate me with lawyers' letters, and that's not going to happen. I'm certainly going to abide by the law, but I'm certainly going to hold uh, firm to the facts that I know and the information I gave to the Department of Justice. And the fact that the Department of Justice failed to uh, prosecute these people is really the problem here because it shows that it's a massive cover-up by the Department of Justice and, uh, and cheating the American people. Now, when you say these names are about to come out, these are names that you're eventually going to reveal? That is correct. And I know that under Swiss law, they're very, very careful with these things. Uh, you could actually go to jail for revealing a client's identity. So is that a concern at this point? Not at all, because I was given a subpoena by the U.S. Senate, and those names were given to the U.S. government, the SEC, the IRS, the DOJ, and the U.S. Senate. I see. Ironically, none of these agencies have published those names, and none of them have been indicted. So wow. quite frankly, it shows you that this is a cover-up on a massive scale. Once again, the Department of Justice is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Now, how did 9-11 change things for Swiss banks? Well, 9-11 was a very precarious time because I had started three weeks after that. Right. And I'll never forget that because I was given uh, this account by a colleague, uh, Abdallah bin Laden, the biological brother of Osama bin Laden. So you can imagine my concern from the get-go. And I, I mentioned it to my bosses and so forth. And they uh, they t tried to downplay my concerns 
Uh, and I'll never forget that. And that was very um, eye-opening, if you will, and that's something that uh, I wrote about in my book. But I think 9-11 also changed the way in which business was done because I think the American government finally realized that if there was no accountability or transparency with uh, Swiss banking, how do we know where that money is going to? Is it going to nefarious groups, terrorist groups, and so forth? And quite frankly, just go back to the Iran-Contra days, back in mm-hmm. the 80s with General Secord and the Reagan administration, you saw a whole host and litany of illegal acts being committed. Yeah. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to the American government that this was going on right under their noses, but they failed to do anything about it. But the impression was that after 9-11 we were cracking down on Swiss banks in an effort to catch terrorist money. Was that just hype or perception? Well, that's it. They, you know, they always like to give this image that they're, they're the best Dick Tracy in town, but unfortunately <laughs> that's not the case. And, and as I said before, a lot of the times when it was brought to their attention, they turned a blind eye because they were part of the problem, whether it was the CIA having accounts in Switzerland or um, all kinds of other um, uh, groups that had monies there and were moving it around for other reasons. I think this is the problem. And when it was on such a grand scale of this many people, just at one bank, 19,000 Americans and $20 billion, you'd have to ask yourself, what, what was it going to take to wake these people up to do something about this? Yeah. And I, when I came forward, they were hostile towards me. I mean, why would you be hostile towards someone who's telling you, uh, there's a law being broken here. I mean, why didn't they uncover it? Where have they been for the last five decades? And this had been going on for decades. And quite frankly, when you think about it, this was not only a violation of the tax code, but also the securities laws in the United States. So on top of everything else, wire fraud, mail fraud, uh, so on and so forth, money laundering, uh, insider trading, and, I mean, take your poison. There's so many uh, charges here. But yet, the U.S. government failed to indict the bank. And I think you have to delve deeper into this to see that uh, the Obama administration was accepting millions of dollars from UPS for uh, the president's campaign and continued to accept that, as well as was very close to the chairman of UPS America, Robert Wolf, playing golf with him, having him over at the White House, flying on Air Force One. I mean, this is clearly a conflict of interest. The president knows better. So, in fact, he violated his oath to the U.S. Constitution, and he betrayed the American people. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more with Bradley Birkenfeld when we come back in just a minute. Hey, folks, it's a new year, and there's no better time to launch an online business or expand your online presence for your existing business. And GoDaddy.com wants to help. GoDaddy's mission is to radically shift the global economy toward life-fulfilling independent ventures, helping their customers kick ass by giving them tools, insights, and the people to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business and the largest domain registrar with over 62 million domain names under management and big savings over other registrars. Their award-winning 24-7 support will help build your online business and give you everything you need to help get your website up and running. Whether you have a new idea or an established business, the key to success online starts with a great domain name. And GoDaddy is trusted by 13 million customers. That's more than any other registrar. 
Right now, my listeners can get a special discount on a GoDaddy domain if you just use my offer code KICK30 at checkout to get 30% off a new purchase. That's GoDaddy.com and the offer code KICK30 for 30% off. You don't have to spend a fortune on a domain. Again, just go to GoDaddy.com and type in the offer code KICK30 at checkout for 30% off and launch your online business today. And if you're enjoying my podcast today, you should check out Lucifer's Banker, the untold story of how I destroyed Swiss bank secrecy by my guest today, Bradley Birkenfeld. And right now you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com slash kickassnews for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be Lucifer's Banker by Bradley Birkenfeld or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com slash kickassnews, or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. At the time that you were going to the feds, the incoming attorney general, Eric Holder, was someone who had been a partner at the law firm of Covington and Burling. And who was their biggest client? UBS. What a (laughs) surprise. Yeah. So you have the president accepting millions of dollars from UBS. And ironically, the Senate committee I went to, Senator Obama was an active member of that committee, but never showed up for one of the hearings. Hmm. Instead, at the very same time, he was accepting these millions of dollars from UPS. So that's clearly a violation. Actually, he should be impeached for such a violation. Wow. Um, but they kept that quite quiet, obviously. They didn't want the American people knowing that. And then, of course, Eric Holder uh, was conflicted because he had represented UBS in private practice. He's the same attorney general that recommended as assistant attorney general to President Clinton to pardon Mark Rich. Right. Well, if if you read my book, Mark Rich's attorney, Bob Tomagen, had a very large account at UBS at Zurich. And if they had not given him a pardon, they might have gotten his attorney as well. So you can only imagine the frustration by uh, law enforcement, as well as the American people, that this kind of uh, shenanigans uh, can't be tolerated much more. And I think you saw this in the recent election, that people were very upset, because then it comes back to Hillary Clinton, who, as the Secretary of State, made a secret deal with the Swiss to send two Chinese Guantanamo detainees to Switzerland to have a political settlement to the UPS case. You had a great life. As you said, it was kind of a James Bond lifestyle, jet-setting around the world, having a fancy apartment in Geneva, having a weekend house in Zermatt, uh, you know, champagne and caviar and so forth. Um, at what point did you decide maybe it's time to get out while the getting's good? Well, it really came down to a three-page document that a colleague of mine brought to my attention that was on our intranet, the internal computer system. And that document essentially contradicted everything we were doing. So that really troubled me, number one. Number two, I was never told about it. And number three, I was never trained on it. So those factors alone made me very wary. And as a director of the bank, I felt as though it was my obligation to bring it to management, which I did. Mm-hmm. And again, they just downplayed it. And I said, no, this is not right. And I continued to push it with legal and compliance. And they never answered me for three months. 
So I think it's very important to understand and your audience to understand is that I took the proper measures internally as the director of the bank to do the right thing. And my own bank shunned me. And in essence, they were putting me and my colleagues at risk and clients at risk, but also the shareholders at risk. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but that document was basically them covering their ass and saying, don't do anything that would violate U.S. law and all this after they had for years and years and years told you, go out, secure U.S. clients, do all of this stuff. is basically contradicting everything that you were taught to do to bring in business. Well, that's exactly right. And, And on top of it, they were paying us large salaries. They were paying us to go to the United States once a quarter. Uh, for two weeks at a time to see existing clients and get prospective clients. They put high barriers to bring in net new money. That was new money you had to bring in on an annual basis, which was quite high, $30, $40, 50000000 million per banker. I mean, this was almost unheard of. So what they did was, in fact, is promote, condone what we were doing, but then on the backside try to cover their ass with this three-page document, which was totally uh, contradictory. When you decided to take this to the feds, basically you handed them the biggest tax fraud case in U.S. history, I think. How did you think they were going to react? Well, you would think that they would accept me with open arms. I mean, certainly uh, a whistleblower is an extension of law enforcement, and I think it's important for people to understand that. And I think it's important that what the Department of Justice is, is they hate whistleblowers because, one, they don't get the credit. Number two, it shows that they're incompetent and corrupt mm-hmm. by not uncovering it in the first place. And the third thing is, in my case, uh, thankfully, there was an award that came through. But that award system was not in place when I started my whistleblowing in Switzerland. So people always said, oh, you did it for the money. No, I started my whistleblowing a year and a half before the law was even passed, which I didn't even know about. So you can see there's a lot of um, negative feelings towards whistleblowers, and the Department of Justice hates them, quite frankly. And yeah. uh, you can see what happened in my case. It's clear. Um, the prosecutor at the Justice Department, I think his name was Kevin Downing, and his team basically treated you like an asshole from the get-go, and they didn't seem terribly interested in what you had to bring them. Uh, if you were to guess, what do you suppose was behind this? Well, the first thing was I, was I was exposing a lot of their rich and wealthy, powerful friends in Washington. That was the first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the government at the time there, that was under the, the very tail end of the Bush administration, um, obviously uh, they were accepting money from UBS as well. And there's certainly people in the Bush administration that had accounts at UBS in Switzerland, and those names have come out as well. So you can see that they were very upset with this. Um, and, and look at Phil Graham. Phil Graham, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, was the vice chairman of UBS in America. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it, goes, it runs so deep, the corruption. And I think America and American citizens are, are fed up. They're tired of this nonsense. They want justice. And that's what I tried to bring to the American people. But unfortunately, um, I ran into a very corrupt Department of Justice, and, uh, and they failed to do their job. And, and in fact, these people then left and all went into private practice to defend the people they should have prosecuted. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is absolutely, it's like a comedy. It really is. Yeah. But unfortunately, the American people get screwed, and these guys run off and take their civil servant jobs and turn it into cash. 
Yeah. And they put you in a tough position, apparently, because you could go to prison in Switzerland for revealing the names of your clients. So unless you had a subpoena, you weren't protected. And so you were practically begging the prosecutor to give you immunity and more importantly, a subpoena. So you didn't get in trouble in Switzerland. And he was kind of dangling that like a carrot in front of you. And I guess he said he wouldn't discuss immunity or a subpoena unless you revealed specific clients' names which he knew you couldn't do. But you did throw him one name, a name, Abdul Aziz Abbas. Who was he again? Well, that was my, my client's boss. And this gentleman had $420 million in six secret numbered accounts. Now, someone would argue, well, he wasn't an American, but why was he on the U.S. desk then? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. And he was my boss. Christian Beauvais was my boss, and he was his client. And I read the file on him in, in the safe because I was curious to find out who this person was. And he had made illegal oil sales in violation of the 1991 U.N. embargo. So this gentleman lived in New York City in a $50 million condo on the 46th and 47th floor of the Olympic Tower. He had his own private phone into my boss's office. And he's making these deals with Saddam Hussein. Now, why wouldn't you pursue this person? Well, this is the problem we're seeing again. I gave that to them, and they told me he was not interested in non-Americans. And this gentleman uh, was very good friends with Rudy Giuliani. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's where the prosecutor put his hand in my face and said, we're not interested in these non-Americans. And I kept trying to push it. And at the time, this was June of 2007, Rudy Giuliani was the frontrunner for the presidential campaign on the Republican side. So you can see that there is some bad blood here, and there's some very um, nefarious relationships that were taking place. Now, I'm not saying that Rudy Giuliani did anything wrong, but I'm just saying if he's best friends with a gentleman who's got $420 million in secret numbered accounts in Switzerland, I think you might want to pursue that, right? Yeah. Now, I wonder, how much of this do you suppose could be attributed to the fact that it was an election year and maybe this prosecutor was looking out for his own job security? Well, here's, here's the other question. His boss, Kevin Downing's boss, Kevin O'Connor, who was the assistant U.S. attorney general, he, um, the day that Barack Obama was sworn in, Kevin O'Connor was sworn in as a partner at Bracewell and Giuliani. It doesn't get much more in bed than that. Well, that's it. I mean, whether it's Phil Graham or Robert Wolf providing money to Obama or protecting UBS's interests in America, making sure they're not fined or indicted, uh, then the prosecutors don't pursue the people I give them, but they go after the whistleblower. And, it, and for your audience, put it this way. In the whole financial crisis, I think I was the only banker to go to jail, the whistleblower. Really? Well, name another banker that went to jail. Did anything happen to your bosses at UBS or to the Americans who were evading taxes and had these numbered accounts? All of my colleagues and the senior executives, I gave the names to the Department of Justice. They gave them secret non-prosecution agreements so they would shut them up so they wouldn't be talking about these politicians and rich billionaires and millionaires who had secret accounts in Switzerland. So once again, you can see we have a corrupt Department of Justice. No matter what they say, I have the proof, and I can show it to anyone at any time, that this is the most corrupt Department of Justice. It's a political tool, and it's a farce, actually, because now you begin to realize that 
They play politics at the Department of Justice. They don't pursue justice, and mm-hmm. it's a business. Yeah. Yeah. And the DOJ kept dangling immunity and a subpoena in front of you to get more information after you had cooperated and come in of your own volition and helped the Department of Justice. They went after you, the whistleblower. I mean, what did Kevin Downing say to you when he threw you under the bus like that? Well, I mean, this is the kind of thing he says, you know, you have to give us these names. And I said, you know, I can't do that. I've asked you for a subpoena for months now. And I've come in in good faith on my dime, back and forth from Switzerland to America to help you, and you don't do anything. So what I did was I told them to buzz off, and I went over to the U.S. Senate, and the Senate gladly gave me a uh, subpoena, which gave me immunity from prosecution in Switzerland where I lived. And they didn't like that because all of a sudden you had another agency taking the credit for the investigation where they were trying to cover it up and harass the whistleblower. The U.S. Senate actually welcomed me, and the SEC as well, and the IRS as well. So you can see, by going to these agencies, it actually benefited me because it protected me in the sense that it exposed the story, not covered it up like the DOJ wanted to. I wonder, why did you decide to keep going and bring this to the feds? I mean, you realized that you probably would have never ended up going to prison if you hadn't had this need to go after UBS. Do you have any regrets about that? No, I don't, actually. I think it was the best thing I did. I think Mm -hmm. um, any logical, rational human being understands that. And I've had many requests from foreign governments. I've been helping many governments, the Greek government, the French government, the German government, the British government, the Canadian government, and many, many others, not only help them rewrite their whistleblowing laws or implement whistleblowing laws, but also to help them on the case against UBS because UBS has been a criminal organization on a global basis. They've done this around the world for decades. Is that what you're working on now? I am. I've been uh, delighted to help foreign governments in their pursuit of justice because they seem to take a better interest in this than our my own government, which is quite frightening, to be honest with you. And I think uh, people began to shake their heads and say, this sounds like a bad dream. And in fact, it is. And if this happens at this level, what else is going on that we don't know about at the Department of Justice? This is really the problem. And they can't be trusted. So what I've done is tried to really help um, other governments, like I said, as well as law enforcement in those countries. And they've been so um, welcoming and uh, helpful and want my assistance. So I've been uh, delighted to do that. And I continue to do that and welcome any other country that asks for my assistance. Um, when you ended up having to serve three years in federal prison, that must have been a huge change from what you were used to, living in Geneva and jet-setting around the world, country house uh, overlooking the Matterhorn, going to the Monaco Grand Prix and all that. It must have been a huge adjustment, I'm sure. Well, again, I think for your audience, they have to understand that uh, certainly going to jail is it's always a shock. But again, the DOJ picked a a ridiculous judge in a ridiculous state, Florida, that had mm-hmm. nothing to do with my case or my charge. It was forum shopping, mm-hmm. typical DOJ tactic, and it's abuse of power and it's illegal. But they do it anyway. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing is is that you're actually going to put a person in prison who came forward, and even the government admitted they could never expose this without my assistance. And they lied in front of the Senate, and they lied to the judge. So I I expected this to happen, and it was just uh, par for the course with them. 
But I went in with the right attitude because once I went into this very low security prison with no jail cells or no fences or anything like that, I saw that the prison system is just a continuation of the corruption within the U.S. government. This is a business. Yeah. This isn't about justice. Well, the book is quite fascinating and entertaining. Uh, it reads like a movie. Has anyone optioned the movie rights yet, or are there any rumblings? Well, I'm working now on um, um, publishing the book overseas in different languages. I want to make sure that the world understands what's been going on, and I think that's important. And that will lead into probably the movie, which um, I'm delighted to work on that. And uh, hopefully everything will work out great so that uh, the world can really see what went on and the truth can be told. It should be a movie. I hope well, that someone you. options it. It's it's really terrific read. Well, thank you, and I hope your audience will uh, be able to read it as well as check out my website, lucifersbanker.com. And uh, again, it's uh, it's important for people to know the truth. What you're working on, you said about uh, encouraging whistleblowing. Is there a separate website for that or anything? Well, it's on my website where people can okay. uh, get onto the contact page and. Uh, Certainly, we're happy to uh, deal uh, confidentially with whistleblowers who might have a case and help them uh, advise them and navigate this uh, world of whistleblowing because you certainly need good legal advice. You need the right people in charge and, and media people as well uh, to help you with your cause. So certainly, if people go to the website, they can see that, and uh, I'd be happy to deal with them and uh, help them in that regard. Terrific. Well, again, the book is called Lucifer's Banker, The Untold Story of How I Destroyed Swiss Bank Secrecy. Bradley Birkenfeld, thanks so much for talking to me. Well, thank you for having me, and have a wonderful uh, holiday. Thanks again to Bradley Birkenfeld for joining me on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his book, Lucifer's Banker, The Untold Story of How I Destroyed Swiss Bank Secrecy on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version for free through that special trial offer just for my listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. For more information, visit lucifersbanker.com and follow Bradley on Twitter at, at Lucifer's Banker. Don't forget to take our listener survey so we can keep the show free and find advertisers who are best matched to you, our listeners. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register for that $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can like Kickass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics and be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on all your social media. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.